Well, hello, fellow teachers. Welcome to Teaching with Power. This is Ben Wilcox, and I want to welcome you and thank you for joining me today as we get to study the book of Esther today. So if you're ready, grab your scriptures and your marking pencils. It's time to dig deep. As an icebreaker, I like to bring in one of my old high school yearbooks to class. And if you're teaching teenagers, they always get a kick out of seeing what you looked like when you were their age. The hairstyles and the clothing, and and it's kind of a fun attention-getter. But even if you aren't teaching the youth, adults might have some fun with that too. But then I ask them a question. When we take pictures of people to help us to remember them, who they are, what part of them do we take a picture of? What best represents them? Do we take a picture of their left elbow or the back of their head or the little toe of their right foot? I mean, is that how we remember people? And, you know, what if the yearbook was filled with pictures of everybody's right foot? Would you say things like, oh yeah, I remember that guy. He was so funny. No, no, we take a picture of their face. Their face is what most sets them apart as them. Now, I have to credit John, by the way, for this idea, because I really like the way he used this example to teach the youth a certain gospel standard that I feel is often misunderstood. And we'll talk about that standard a little later after we study a character from the book of Esther that's often overlooked as a minor character. But I think she has a valuable lesson to teach us. And that's the person that was the queen that came before Esther. And what was her name? See if you can find it in Esther chapter 1. Who was she? Vashti. Vashti was King Ahasuerus's first queen. And he was the king of Persia at this time. And we've got to remember that the story of Esther takes place sometime after the destruction of Jerusalem during the Jewish exile. So you have Jewish people living scattered all throughout the ancient world, including here in the capital city of Persia, Susa. Well, this King Ahasuerus is married to this beautiful Persian woman, Vashti, and I believe that she has something to teach us. The question is, is she a good example? or a bad example. So let's read the story and decide which side she falls on. What do you feel is a lesson that her example could teach us? And just to preempt any awkward moments in your class, you could begin by saying that you don't feel that the lesson of the story is that women should obey their husbands no matter what. That's not where we're going with this today. We have, for the most part, as a society moved beyond the false notion of female subjugation, thank heavens. So if that's not it, what can she teach us? Read the story found in Esther 1, verses 1 through 22. Now you could approach this reading in a number of different ways. You could play an audio version of the story for everyone to listen to, which can be downloaded from the church's website. You could read them the story yourself as a teacher. You could have them read the story quietly to themselves, or you could have them take turns reading the story as a class. However, I found that that last method usually doesn't work 
as well for large sections of text. Now, I'm not going to read it here, verse for verse, but I encourage you to do so and then come back. Just to summarize the story, King Ahasuerus throws a huge party for himself, a 180-day-long party, no less. And then at the end of that huge party, he has a final seven-day feast to end things with a real bang. And the story tells us that all the men are feasting in one place and all the women in another. And then in verse 10, it says that when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commands for Queen Vashti to come in so that he can show everybody how beautiful she is. You know, he's like, oh, wow, you guys have got to see my wife. Woo, she's gorgeous. You got to check her out. Go bring her in. And how does Vashti respond to that request? She refuses. Now, under those circumstances, why do you think she's refusing? What's her motivation? Is it out of a sense of defiance and disrespect for the king? I personally don't think so. Now, we don't know for sure, but there are some really good indicators that she has a very different reason for not coming. I believe that she refuses to come out of a sense of modesty and self-respect. I mean, think about it. Women, would you want to be paraded around in front of a bunch of drunk men for them to ogle you and check you out? Probably not. And so she won't come. She does not want to be treated as an object, a possession, or to be valued only for her outward appearance. And that's the lesson I feel that Vashti is teaching us. She's a great example of strength and womanhood and the principle of modesty. Now, the Jewish historian Josephus suggests this. Josephus lived a little after the time of Jesus Christ, and he had access to records and, and a historical understanding that's now lost. So he adds these details to the narrative. Now the king was desirous to show her to those that feasted with him, as she exceeded all other women in beauty. And he sent some to command her to come to his banquet. But she, out of regard to the laws of the Persians, which forbid the wives to be seen by strangers, did not go to the king, and though he repeatedly sent the eunuchs to her, she nevertheless continued to refuse to come. So according to Josephus, her refusal to come was out of a sense of propriety and a commitment to her cultural values. It must have taken great courage and resolve for Vashti to directly disobey the order of the king. But she does anyway, regardless of the consequences. And what were those consequences? In the heat of his anger and under the influence of alcohol and because of peer pressure put on him by his associates and his friends. Ahasuerus is convinced to divorce Vashti to make her a public example. So that according to his friend's opinion, all the wives of the kingdom shall give to their husbands honor, both to great and small. They're worried that this story is going to get out there and then all the women of the kingdom are going to start getting ideas and disobeying their husband's wishes. And we can't have that. 
So that's what he does. But then Josephus adds some more detail to the story. It appears that after things cool off a bit, Ahasuerus regrets his decision. Which shouldn't surprise us. How many regrettable things have been done as a result of drunkenness and peer pressure? So Josephus writes, But the king was in love with her and could not bear the separation. And yet by the law he did not have the power to be reconciled to her. So he grieved at not being able to obtain his desire. But when his friends saw him in such pain, they advised him to cast out the memory of his wife and of his desire for her, but to send abroad over all the habitable earth to search out for comely virgins and to take her he best liked for his wife, because his passion for his former wife would be quenched by the introduction of another, and the affection he had for Vashti would little by little be withdrawn and transferred to the woman living with him. He was persuaded to follow this advice, and accordingly gave order to certain persons to select from the virgins of his kingdoms those that were esteemed the most beautiful, and to bring them to him. So that's what sets up the entire story of Esther. That's how she ends up in the palace and eventually becomes the new queen. But how sad to discover that the king really regretted having divorced his former wife because of a rash decision made under the coercion of his friends. If there was a quick principle that Ahasuerus could teach us here, it might be this. Beware the influence of alcohol and peer pressure. They can often cause us to do things that we regret. But back to Vashti. Her resolve in this difficult situation, I feel, makes her a biblical hero. She was a woman who so valued propriety, virtue, and modesty that she refused the orders of the most powerful man in the world at great personal risk. So the truth that she teaches us, choose modesty and dignity over affection and attention. Now that resolve of hers did carry some real social consequences, didn't it? She lost the throne. She lost her marriage. She lost her prestige. But what did she gain or maintain? Something far more valuable, her integrity, her dignity, her virtue. That was more important to her, regardless of the outcome. Well, how can we follow the example of Vashti? We can follow her by also being deeply committed to the principle of modesty. And what is the principle of modesty? I think it's best expressed in the For the Strength of Youth pamphlet. Let me read from that here. Your body is sacred. Respect it and do not defile it in any way. Through your dress and appearance, you can show that you know how precious your body is. You can show that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ and that you love him. Prophets of God have continually counseled his children to dress modestly. When you are well-groomed and modestly dressed, you invite the companionship of the Spirit, and you can be a good influence on others. Your dress and grooming influence the way you and others act. Never lower your standards of dress. Do not use a special occasion as an excuse to be immodest. When you dress immodestly, you send a message that is contrary to your identity as a son or daughter of God. You also send the message that you are using your body to get attention and approval. 
Now, whenever I teach the principle of modesty, I make sure to tell the young men that this standard applies to them just as much as it does to the young women. Remember our icebreaker. What part of ourselves represents us? Our face. The principle of modesty is breached when we do anything that deliberately draws attention away from us to some other aspect of our appearance. So yeah, that's why young women are often counseled to be wary of the way they dress so as not to draw undue attention to their bodies rather than them. And not even their face so much as them as a person, as an individual, as a soul represented by the unique appearance of their countenance. God does not want his sons and daughters to be valued for external or superficial reasons. And the way we dress is not the only way the principle of modesty can be infringed. The For the Strength of Youth pamphlet adds this line as well. Young men and young women should be neat and clean and avoid being extreme or inappropriately casual in clothing, hairstyle, and behavior. So, extremes are to be avoided. Why? Because extremes draw attention away from who we are and focuses people on some outward aspect of ourselves. Extreme hairstyles. Extreme piercings. I think this is why the church discourages tattoos. These are all things that can cause others to concentrate on things other than who we really are on the inside. Remember 1 Samuel 16:7, The Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. So I encourage us to remember the Vashti principle. Modesty and self-respect, propriety and dignity are worth more than social attention or relationships even. So yeah, if you choose to be modest, there may be some social consequences to that. You may not get the notoriety, the recognition, the attention that others get, as superficial as it may be. But you will gain the respect and the attention of those that really value you for you and your own respect and a sense of confidence in your integrity and worth. Vashti teaches us this, and I hope that we can learn something from her in this book too, just as we can from Esther. But now, let's focus on this other incredible woman whose book bears her name. The story of Esther is really a literary masterpiece that almost reads like a novel. There's mystery, intrigue, revenge, irony, assassination plots, and the fate of the entire Jewish people resting on the act of one young woman. Such a fun book of scripture with a potent and moving message. And an icebreaker for the story of Esther would be to just show your class the church-produced movie of the story. It's very well done and can help give your students a sense of what happens in this book in a relatively short period of time, about 14 minutes. Because a danger with teaching the book of Esther is to get so caught up in the details of the narrative that we fail to teach what it teaches. 
which is far more important than just enjoying an entertaining story. Still, they do need to know the story in order for the lesson to have impact. So do your best to seek a balance between the two. And I find that showing the film is a good way to do this. As they watch the movie, they could also fill in the following crossword puzzle, which can help them to pay better attention to the details of the story. And also there are some questions that come from the scriptures after the movie ends, since the movie doesn't cover the entire story, only up to the point where Esther enters the king's chamber without being summoned. So it's a bit of a cliffhanger. The scriptures will give your students the rest of the story. On the handout, the questions are arranged in such a manner that they do in fact go in the order of the movie to make it easier to follow along. So here are the answers. Two across. Mordecai the Jew refused to do this before Haman, the king's advisor. Bow. Six across. There was a law in the land that prohibited anyone from approaching the king or entering his chamber without an blank. Invitation is the answer. Twelve across. Because of his divorce, the king had sought throughout the entire kingdom for a new blank and had chosen Esther. The answer is queen. Three down. Haman desired to have all the Jews blank by royal decree. He desired to have all the Jews destroyed by royal decree. One down. Mordecai and Esther were related. They were blank. The answer is cousins. Esther uh, was an orphan, and so her cousin, Mordecai, takes care of her. Eleven across. Mordecai mourned at the gate of the palace and sent a message requesting that Esther make supplication to the king for her blank. The answer is people, for her people. Five down. Esther was afraid to speak to the king. He had not called for her for blank days, and she knew that anyone who approached the king without being called would be under an immediate death sentence. The answer is 30. Now, I've sometimes had students ask me why it was such a big deal for Esther to talk to her husband. They kind of scoff a little bit and say, why is that such a great act of courage? Well, a couple of things to consider here. Marriages back then weren't quite what they are today. Equality in marriage relationships was not really the order of the day. Men were generally considered the sole leaders of their households, and their wives were expected to be obedient to their demands. Plus, Ahasuerus is just not any man. He's the king. What he says goes. Esther says that she had not been summoned to him for 30 days. Now, why is that? We don't know. It could be that the relationship was not really a close one to begin with. Esther was maybe more of a figurehead. Uh, or, or some have suggested that perhaps they were at odds with each other at the time. Or perhaps Ahasuerus was a bit of an intimidating man 
or easily upset. I mean, who knows? But there is something else to consider. Is there any precedent in the story that would justify Esther's concern for doing something that he didn't command? Yeah, remember Vashti? We've already seen what he's willing to do to a queen that doesn't obey his wishes. He divorces and deposes her for not coming when he had called. And that's not a far cry from what's happening here. The only difference is that she is coming to him when she hasn't been called, interrupting him. Also, there's another part of the story, not depicted in the movie, where there's an assassination plot on the life of the king. Now, it's foiled by Mordecai, which eventually leads to his promotion in the kingdom. But that's just a good indicator that these are dangerous times. The rules put in place for the safety of the king were no frivolous matter. Also, her request is to go in and ask the king to change a royal decree. Some might have looked at that as rather presumptuous for a a newly chosen queen to come in and suggest political moves and policy changes to the king. And the fact that she is so concerned and so worried must be taken as an indicator that she truly feels that her life is in danger in this situation. It was certainly a bold and courageous move for Esther to come into the king under those circumstances. Let's keep that in mind as we study the story. All right, back to the crossword puzzle. Eight across. A person could only be saved if the king held out his golden blank to pardon them. Scepter. Thirteen across. Mordecai's message to Esther. Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a blank as this? Time. For such a time as this. Seven across. Esther requested that all the Jews of the city blank for her. Fast. Four down. Esther had the courage to go before the king without being called, but obtained blank in his sight, and was not killed. Favor. She obtained favor in his sight. Nine down. Esther requested that the king blank the letters devised by Haman to destroy the Jews. Reverse. Ten down. Instead of sorrow and destruction, because of Esther's courage, the Jewish people had light, gladness, honor, and blank. The answer is joy. Eleven down. To this day, Jewish people around the world celebrate Esther's victory over this plot every year with a special holiday called blank. And the answer is Purim. Well, now that we have a good understanding of the story, we can focus our attention on what the story teaches. To help make this book of scripture more relevant to us, let's see if we can draw some comparisons between Esther's situation and our own. Take each of the following elements of the story and decide what you feel they could represent for us. First of all, 
Where can we see ourselves in the story? Who do we want to compare ourselves to or strive to be like? Esther, right? Esther represents us. Hopefully, we as members of the true church of Jesus Christ see ourselves in her and can act as she did to become modern-day Esther's. What about Haman? Haman is a good symbol for Satan. Uh, He's somebody who, because of his pride and jealousy and hatred, desires that we be destroyed. How about the law of the land? This is a tougher one. But perhaps that could represent the unrighteous philosophies and norms and opinions of the world. There are a lot of social laws and worldly laws out there that stand in contradiction to the laws of God. The question is, how are we going to react to them when they threaten to destroy our faith or morality? Hopefully we act like Esther. And so what does Esther's act of going before the king represent? And what does that look like in a Latter-day member of the church? Anytime we show the courage and strength of character to stand up for truth and righteousness, regardless of the difficulty, regardless of the outcome, we're following Esther's example. When we defy the laws of the world to defend the laws of God, we're following her example. When we choose the right, when it would be so much easier to just go with the flow, we're following her example. And to do that requires great courage and strength. Sometimes there are real consequences to those decisions. The world isn't always very pleased with those who don't bow to their will. The kings of this land are not always willing to hold out the golden scepter of mercy to those who flout their desires. And what about the Jews being saved? They could represent all the people that are saved through the example and righteous decisions of good people. When Latter-day members of the church stand for truth, preach the gospel, or set a good example, they save people. They bring joy and rejoicing to the lives of others. Well, I think we all know that it's not always easy to have courage to do the right thing. We know from the story that it wasn't easy for Esther to make the decision to approach the king. But there were some things that helped Esther to make that decision. I want you to study Esther chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, and find as many things as you can that helped give Esther the strength to do what was right. And perhaps we can find strength in those kinds of things as well. I see at least four. Number one, support and encouragement from family and friends. Mordecai is there to support and encourage Esther to make this decision. And we too can surround ourselves with good influences that can help us to be strong in the face of temptation or challenge. I will always be forever grateful for the righteous influence of my parents, especially in my youth. They always taught and encouraged me to choose the right, honor my priesthood, and live my faith. I also had really amazing friends in my youth, in college years, that that shared and supported my values. I didn't have to say no to drugs or 
ask them to turn off the bad movie, or to use clean language around me. They lived those same standards, and and we found strength and support in each other. Thomas, John, Travis, Dave, and Darren. I had such good friends, and their influence helped to keep me on the path throughout those precarious teenage and young adult years. Number two, my favorite line of the whole story, Mordecai's plea. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Something that can help us to have courage is to know that we have been sent to the earth at this time as members of Christ's church with a purpose for just such a time as this. Do we know if that's true? Yeah, we do. How many times have we been told that we have been held in reserve for the last days because of our strength and valiance in the pre-mortal world? Here are just a few examples from Ezra Taft Benson. For nearly 6,000 years, God has held you in reserve to make your appearance in the final days before the second coming of the Lord. Some individuals will fall away, but the kingdom of God will remain intact to welcome the return of its head, even Jesus Christ. While our generation will be comparable in wickedness to the days of Noah, when the Lord cleansed the earth by flood, there is a major difference this time. It is that God has saved for the final inning some of his strongest children who will help bear off the kingdom triumphantly. That is where you come in, for you are the generation that must be prepared to meet your God. From Gordon B. Hinckley, Truly, my dear young friends, you are a chosen generation. I hope you will never forget it. I hope there will grow in your hearts an overpowering sense of gratitude to God who has made it possible for you to come upon the earth in this marvelous season of the world's history. From Thomas S. Monson, Although there have always been challenges in the world, many of those which you face are unique to this time. But you are some of our Heavenly Father's strongest children, and He has saved you to come to the earth for such a time as this. With His help, you will have the courage to face whatever comes. Though the world may at times appear dark, you have the light of the gospel, which will be as a beacon to guide your way. And President Russell M. Nelson, My dear extraordinary youth, you were sent to earth at this precise time, the most crucial time in the history of the world, to help gather Israel. There is nothing happening on this earth right now that is more important than that. There is nothing of greater consequence, absolutely nothing. My beloved younger brothers and sisters, you are among the best the world has ever sent to this world. You have the capacity to be smarter and wiser and have more impact on the world than any previous generation. You are the hope of Israel, children of the promised day. And you'll notice there that I've shared some quotes from prophets who are long since gone. It's not just the teenagers or the young people of today that this distinction belongs to. It belongs to all the adults of this time as well, to all faithful members of the church. The prophets have been telling us things like this for decades. We are all a part of the chosen generation, the generation of the latter days, 
we've been held in reserve for such a time as this. The Lord needs us to show strength and courage in the face of difficulty. Another place we can go to see our foreordained potential and power is our patriarchal blessings. They reveal that our Father in Heaven really does have a specific and personal plan and purpose for us in this life. That we weren't sent to this earth randomly. We've been sent to accomplish certain things and fulfill certain aims to influence others in a specific way, to live our lives as examples, to be the salt of the earth, and to let our light so shine before others. So it's not who knoweth whether we are come to the kingdom for such a time as this, but we know that we are come to the kingdom for such a time as this. A third thing, fasting. Esther has all the people and her maidens, those around her, fast for her. Fasting is a powerful way to find strength to do what's right. If you're feeling weak, if you're feeling you don't have the strength to resist temptation, if you're feeling that you just don't have the courage to stand up to your peers, fast. And though fasting may make our bodies feel weak for a time, it makes our spirits feel stronger. It's because we're subjugating our physical desires for a spiritual strength. And and you can ask those around you that love you to fast for you as well. There is great strength that comes from this practice. God has provided us the simple way of showing him our level of desire to receive his help. And I found in my experience that it really does make a difference. Number four. She has an, if I perish, I perish kind of attitude. And that's my second favorite line from the story of Esther. Choosing the right does not guarantee that the world will react positively to it. God will always reward righteous behavior, but the world may not. So we sometimes have to adopt an Esther-like attitude. The attitude of, Oh, well, whatever happens will happen, but I'm going to choose the right. And if some negative terrestrial consequence comes because of it, so be it. And so we say things like, I will take this test honestly without cheating. And if I fail, I fail. Or I will not swear or drink or dress immodestly or watch inappropriate media And if I'm not very popular with my peers, then I'm not very popular with my peers. I will go and serve a mission for the Lord. And if I lose my scholarship, then I lose my scholarship. I will obey the law of chastity. And if I lose that relationship because of it, then I lose that relationship. Can you come up with a a statement like that on your own? Each of these four things can help us to become latter-day Esthers in our own right, and to do the right thing even when the obstacles are many and the stakes are high. So the truth here, I might word it like this. If I have the courage to choose the right, God can bless me with the strength to do difficult things, 
and I can bless the lives of many. To liken the scriptures, when have you, or someone you know, stepped out in faith like Esther did? And what happened? Well, there are many forces arrayed against truth and righteousness in our modern world. Latter-day disciples of Christ face evils even more dangerous and wicked than Haman of Esther's day. These forces seek our spiritual destruction and even our physical destruction at times. In light of this danger, the Lord has foreordained, called, and sent forth modern Esthers to come to the earth for such a time as this. You, us, all members of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days, he has sent us to save the principles of goodness, faith, virtue, and truth. He sent us to instill hope in others through our courage and our examples. As modern-day Esthers, we've got to realize that we will have to believe and do things that will often go against the very customs and conventions of our day. We may face ridicule. Our views and beliefs and lifestyles may not be popular. But with that courage and strength, who knows how many countless souls will be saved. Well, there is one other character that you may wish to focus your attention on from this story. And as an icebreaker and introduction to this individual, you can play a quick round of hangman with your class. And I know, I know, you might be saying, oh, come on, Brother Wilcox, isn't that the most cliché overused Sunday school activity of all time? Yeah, but there's a reason why I choose that particular activity for this part of the lesson. Our word is only five letters long. What is it? The word is Haman. Haman, the villain in the book of Esther, who sought to destroy not only his archenemy Mordecai, but all of the Jewish people of the empire. And what happens to Haman in the end? He's hanged. He ends up dying on the very gallows that he had erected to hang Mordecai. So do you see why I chose that as the icebreaker? It's kind of fitting for the story, isn't it? But there's one particular life lesson that I want to briefly share with you when it comes to Haman. What was it that he did that led to this whole challenging situation in the first place. I feel he embodies a very dangerous attitude and mindset that people might adopt in life. I want you to see if you can figure out what it is. This attitude is exhibited throughout the story, but it's most clearly seen in Esther chapter 5, verses 9 through 12. Then went Haman forth that day, joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he stood not up nor moved for him, he was full of indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman refrained himself, and when he came home, he sent and called for his friends and Zeresh his wife. And Haman told them of the glory of his riches and the multitude of his children and all the things wherein the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced above the princes and servants of the king. Haman said, moreover, 
Yea, Esther the queen did let no man come in with the king unto the banquet that she had prepared but myself. And tomorrow I am invited unto her also with the king. Yet all this availeth me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Did you catch the problem? I mean, Haman has so much going for him, doesn't he? He's in a position of great power and influence in the kingdom. He's basically the king's right-hand man. He's got great riches. He's married. He has a large family, lots of children. He's got a pretty darn good life. But he lets one small negative thing sour everything else in his life. This one little gnat of a problem begins to be the only thing he thinks about. All the great blessings in his life availed him nothing as long as Mordecai was there. This is what we would call making a mountain out of a molehill. So there's this one guy that doesn't bow to you. So what? Enjoy your life. Focus on the good. Be grateful for your blessings, Haman. Forget the rest. But he doesn't. And sadly for him, it's that obsession with Mordecai's refusal to bow that is going to prove his undoing. It's because of that that he plots to have all the Jews killed, which is going to require Esther to stand up for her people, which will be the catalyst for Haman's guilt to be revealed, which will cause the king to have him hanged. Do we ever do the same kind of thing? Do we make Haman's mistake? Do we allow the negative things in our lives become the focus of all our attention and allow those things to make us miserable? Are we pessimists, cynics, critics, or glass-half-empty kinds of people? Are we always looking for what's wrong in ourselves, what's wrong in others, what's wrong in our lives, what's wrong in the world, rather than all that is right? I'm afraid that when we allow the negative to dominate our consciousness, that we too will bring about our own misery or even destruction. Somebody who really made this point well and always impressed me as a quintessential model of optimism was President Gordon B. Hinckley. And he once shared the following. Love this. It's a little extensive, but it's worth a read. He said, Recently I spent the better part of a week in Washington, D.C., living in a hotel room. Each morning I watched the early news on television and then read the morning paper while eating breakfast. The amount of venom that spewed from the mouths and pens of the commentators was unbelievable. They were aflame with indignation. In all that week of morning watching and reading, I never heard nor read among the commentators and editorialists a single paragraph of positive thought. The speakers were brilliant. They were men of incisive language, scintillating in expression. The columnists were masters of the written word. With studied art, they poured out the sour vinegar of invective and anger, judging as if all wisdom belonged to them. At the conclusion of that week, I too made a negative observation. Said I, Surely this is the age and place of the gifted pickle sucker. 
love that. The tragedy is that this spirit is epidemic. Criticism, fault-finding, evil speaking, these are the spirit of the day. They are in our national life. The snide remark, the sarcastic jibe, the cutting down of associates, these too often are of the essence of our conversation. In our homes, wives weep and children finally give up under the barrage of criticism leveled by husbands and fathers. Criticism is the forerunner of divorce, the cultivator of rebellion, sometimes a catalyst that leads to failure. Even in the church, it sows the seeds of inactivity and finally apostasy. I come this morning with a plea that we stop seeking out the storms and enjoy more fully the sunlight. I'm suggesting that we accentuate the positive. I'm asking that we look a little deeper for the good, that we still are voices of insult and sarcasm, that we more generously complement virtue and effort. What I am suggesting and asking is that we turn from the negativism that so permeates our society and look for the remarkable good in the land and the times in which we live, that we speak of one another's virtues more than we speak of one another's faults, that optimism replace pessimism, that our faith exceed our fears. Now, perhaps Haman could have used that talk before he set in motion the events that would eventually lead to his downfall. So the truth of Haman's life If I focus on the negative, the petty, the imperfect, I invite despair and misfortune into my life. To liken the scriptures, to help combat that attitude a little bit right here, right now, what are some of the positives of your life? What do you have to be grateful for? What is good and right about your current situation? Well, I believe that optimism and idealism are a far better way to live than to get caught up in the negative and the flawed. We've got so much to be grateful for in this world, in this life, in this church, regardless of the problems and the difficulties we might face. Let's not make mountains out of molehills. For all intents and purposes, let's strive to be optimistic, happy people. Men are that they might have joy. Don't diminish or throw out all of the good of your life because of the bad. Don't sabotage your own life like Haman did. Accentuate the positive. Well, I hope that you've gotten something positive out of this lesson today and specifically from the book of Esther. The scriptures are just so amazing, aren't they? Well, if any of you are interested in any of the resources that I put together for teachers, go to teachingwithpower.com. You'll find the resources there. Uh, If you found what we talked about today helpful, I encourage you to share this with somebody else. That's the biggest favor you could do for me. Thank you so much for watching. Now get out there and teach with power.